0: Good morning, my name's Ashish. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mill City, and I'm so excited to dive into our passage together today. But before we do that, let's pray. Um, And I know that there's been a lot that's been going on in the world, a lot that's been going on in our country, uh, maybe a lot that's been going on in our lives as well. And so instead of just launching into prayer, what I'd love to do is just take like 10 or 15 seconds and just kind of be silent. Uh, bring the prayer requests that we need to bring to God uh, in silence, and then I'll, I'll bring us into prayer here, but let's take a few moments, and let's just calm ourselves, and uh, yeah, bring these prayer requests to God. Father, Son, and Spirit, I can't think of a better prayer than the one we just sang. Oh God, my God, I need you. Jesus, we need you in our lives. We need you in our country. We need you in our world, Lord. So Jesus, we bring these prayer requests to you knowing that you are the healer. Knowing that you're the provider. Knowing that you are our refuge and strength. You're God who's with us. You're a God who is making the wrong things right. And so, Jesus, thank you that we get to gather here together this morning. Thank you that your presence is with us. And so, Holy Spirit, as we dive into your word together, would you give us ears to hear your voice, a heart that's sensitive to where you're moving. And Holy Spirit, would you give us the courage to respond? Lord, we love you. And how grateful we get to spend this time together. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 Well, pretty early into our marriage, my wife Anna and I had the opportunity to travel a bit. It was awesome. We got to see new friends. We got to go on some new adventures, knock off a couple states on our journey to 50. But it was on one of our first trips together to California that Anna discovered that she had married two different people. We'll call the first Responsible Ashish, and the second Vacation Ashish. See, Responsible Ashish was back at home, balancing the budget twice a month, making sure everything down to the last $2 from Ali fit into the right line. Responsible Ashish was all about, hey, I'm going to say no to instant gratification so that I can do something in the future. What are we saving up for together? But Vacation Ashish was like, what budget? Vacation Ashish lives in the moment. Vacation Ashish adopts the phrase, you only live once. Vacation Ashish never says no to a souvenir and always says yes to fancy things. <laughs> Vacation Ashish is carefree. Vacation Ashish is who you want on your next trip. Amen, this? amen. amen. <laughs> Well, needless to say, after that trip to California, Vacation Ashish and Responsible Ashish had a painful reckoning. And I hate to break it to you, but it looks like Vacation Ashish has been shelved indefinitely. (laughs) Okay, why are we talking about Vacation Ashish? Well, as I've been reflecting on this season of Lent a time we take as a community to just prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection on Easter, I've discovered that as I'm following Jesus, I'm tempted to follow this version of Jesus I call Vacation Jesus. (laughs) Now, let me explain. Vacation Jesus is great because he always approves of what I'm doing. Vacation Jesus doesn't ask me to change. Vacation Jesus won't make me give up anything that'll cost me. He is only for my comfort and happiness. Vacation Jesus agrees with everything I agree with and actually disagrees with the people I disagree with. They're such party poopers. Vacation Jesus conveniently fits into my morning quiet time or the two hours I give on Sunday. But then he and I bid farewell as I step back into real life. Vacation Jesus doesn't challenge me to listen and respond to his voice because Vacation Jesus is silent and stays in his place. I can't be the only one that's familiar with following Vacation Jesus. Now, this is not to shame us. At times, we don't even realize how easy it is to buy into this misconception. Especially in America, we can be so caught up in the busyness of life that Vacation Jesus can become an accessory to our lives, someone we can follow when we feel like it and can dump when it's inconvenient. But that's not the Jesus we see in Scripture. The good news isn't about the coming of vacation Jesus, but it's about the arrival of a king. And he's a king and a leader that we've never seen before, and he's bringing a new kind of kingdom. And when we discover the depth of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing and the kind of leader that Jesus is, I think we'll realize that it's worth confronting our misconceptions. And in our passage today, we are shown the kind of king that Jesus is. And just like the disciples and the chief priests and the crowds, we're invited to respond. And so this morning, would we ask together, what does this passage tell us about the kind of king that Jesus is? And in light of that, how are we invited to respond? So we're continuing our conversation through the Gospel of Mark, so if you have a Bible or an app, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. It'll be on the screen as well. Now as you're turning there, I just want to catch us up to speed. Where have we been so far in our series in Mark? So in this series, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. It's a theme we see throughout the Old and New Testament, and it talks about the sovereign reign or rule of God that is breaking into our world. These moments, we can notice the moments that the kingdom of God is breaking through by noticing moments where there's healing, noticing moments where wrong things are made right, where there are glimpses of joy or moments of freedom. Now, we see these moments throughout the Gospel of Mark, and this continues in Mark chapter 11. Now, Mark 11 starts off with a story you might be familiar with Jesus is on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. Often we celebrate this on Palm Sunday or the Sunday before Easter. Jesus has spent the last few years healing and teaching in the surrounding towns, but now he's heading into the royal city. And no one was riding into Jerusalem unless they were royalty. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, it's a powerful statement of who he is and the kingdom that he's bringing. See, unlike the Roman emperors of the day, Jesus was not riding in on a war horse, but he was riding in on a donkey. The symbolized peace. Jesus didn't come to subjugate or conquer the people. He came to save them. And the people know this, and they shout, Hosanna, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. They knew the prophecies. They had expectations of what the Messiah would do and the kingdom he would bring. This is the king that they had waited centuries for. But then the story takes what's on the surface a weird turn. And what we'll see is this is not vacation Jesus, this is King Jesus entering Jerusalem. And he's about to shake some things up. And so we're going to begin in chapter 11, verse 12. This is the day after Jesus has gone into Jerusalem. So Mark says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt it in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay. Well, to help us catch our breath a little bit, I found a meme about this passage that I'd like to share here. So this meme says, me loses all my money in Monopoly. Me out loud, don't freak out, it's just a game. What would Jesus do? Me internally thinking, think, what would Jesus do? And there's a picture of Jesus flipping over a table. I can thankfully say I've never gotten that intense about board games. But what in the world is going on, right? Jesus is cursing innocent trees, tables are being flipped. Now instead of praise, there's a plot to kill Jesus. And we end up with Jesus talking about moving mountains into the sea. This is not the gentle, meek, or stained-glass Jesus I'm used to seeing. So what's going on? Anytime we hear Jesus use hyperbolic or strong language, there's almost always a deeper spiritual reality that Jesus is drawing attention to. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now we're going to step into a segment that we like to call Seminary for Everyone. Now, seminary is pastor school, and as a teaching team, we love bringing seminary-level information to you because we know that you'd love that. And so, would you join me? We're going to step into seminary for everyone. And we're going to start with the fig tree. The fig tree has no fruit. But Mark indicates that this is not the season for figs. So why is Jesus upset? It's like going to Dairy Queen on Lowry in the middle of winter. It's not the season for ice cream. I can't be upset that they're closed. Now, maybe you've picked up on this, but this is really not about the fig tree. When Mark says, it's not the season, he's saying, don't get distracted by the fig tree. Keep reading. The focus is actually about what comes afterwards. Mark often uses this literary technique we like to call a mark sandwich. Now, the academic term is intercalation, but a sandwich keeps us in line with the food theme in this passage. So here's what Mark does all throughout his book. This technique involves sandwiching a text in between two other stories so that what's in the middle is interpreted through the lens of the surrounding stories. So you can see how this passage is divided up. You have this encounter with the fig, and then in the middle you have Jesus' encounter in the temple, and then the encounter with the fig is right after that story. So Mark is using this technique to say that the interaction about the fig tree is not just about the fig tree. The fig tree is actually a symbol that represents the temple. Mark hints at this by using a unique Greek word for season in verse 13. It's not the botanical term that we would expect someone to use if they were referring to plants or if they were a farmer. The term Mark uses is a Greek word that we've heard before. It's the Greek word kairos. Now, this is the same Greek word that's translated as time, In Mark 1, verse 15, when Jesus says the time, or the kairos, has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. The term kairos refers to the moments where God's kingdom is breaking in, and in light of that, we're invited to respond. Often the imagery of bearing fruit is described in this response. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, And he's welcomed in as a king. What a tangible example of God's kingdom physically coming near. And Jesus goes to the place where he would expect to find the people most ready to respond, most ready to pay attention to this kairos, most ready to bear spiritual fruit. He goes to the temple. The temple was historically a place that represented God's presence. While it could never be the full and final dwelling place of God, one of the purposes of the temple was to be a place where people encountered God's love and forgiveness. Now this was through the practice of offering sacrifices. Even more, the temple was meant to be a beacon of God's love to a watching world, a place of welcome. Jesus teaches about this original intent when he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah talks about those on the outside looking in and he says, God says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So when Jesus goes to the temple, he expects to find spiritual fruitfulness But instead of being a symbol of God's welcome to the world, the temple that Jesus finds has been warped by those in power into becoming a symbol of exclusion to the world. The current iteration of the temple was built by King Herod. It was a magnificent feat of engineering and architecture. It was regarded as one of the wonders of the ancient world. But while the physical temple was beautiful on the outside, inside the temple was far from a place where people could encounter God's love and forgiveness. This temple was divided into different sections with the outer section reserved for the Gentiles, one of the groups on the outside that Isaiah talks about. And the Gentiles could not cross into the inner court under penalty of death. But this was a problem because the closer to the interior you got, the closer you were to the place where God's presence was thought to dwell. So there was already a barrier for those on the outside trying to encounter God's presence. To make matters worse, Caiaphas, the head of the chief priests, or those in charge, decided to bring the money exchange and the animal markets necessary for the sacrifices from outside the temple to inside those Gentile courts. And it's not like the money exchange and markets were at a fair price. In addition to the Gentiles, those on the outside, the poor of society, were being overcharged for these sacrifices— but they had no other option. They needed to get these sacrifices. This was the way they could experience God's love and forgiveness. So imagine stepping into this temple and feeling this feeling of exclusion, the tension that came from feeling less than. Imagine the chaos, the animals, the yelling. Instead of a place of God's healing love, the chief priests and the teachers had made this place a place that took advantage of the poor that preyed on the outsider, outsider, that fueled legalism instead of genuine devotion. Instead of a place of God's presence, it had become a place of abusive power, a place that was far from the heart of God. So Jesus calls this out by quoting the prophet Jeremiah. He says, this is not a house of prayer for all nations, what it should have been. He says, they, the chief priests, the teachers, have made it a den of robbers. Author and scholar N.T. Wright comments that the temple had come to mean violence towards others and injustice towards Israel itself. Sure, the temple was beautiful. The fig tree had leaves, but there was no spiritual fruit. So King Jesus sees this injustice and acts the way we would want a good God to act. King Jesus may be peaceful, but he's not passive when it comes to confronting wrong. He reflects the heart of a God who stands alongside those on the margins, those excluded, the vulnerable, and he begins flipping tables. He drives out the money changers and those selling animals. Once again, like strong language, the strong action points to a deeper spiritual reality. The temple's primary function was to oversee the sacrifices. This depended on the money exchange and the animal purchases. But Jesus, taking that away, said powerfully that the reason for the temple's existence was being taken away. He's not cleaning the temple. He's disrupting and condemning the abuse that's going on by stopping the main reason it was built to function. Jesus shows this by using the fig tree as a prophetic example. After the experience at the temple, notice that the disciples see the fig tree was cursed and withered down to its roots it had been rendered useless. The sacrifices at the temple were no longer going to be the way that people encountered God's love and forgiveness. This new king of this new kingdom was bringing in a new order. So Mark lays out this picture of King Jesus in chapter 11. A king who rides into Jerusalem as a symbol of peace. And then a king who passionately fights for justice who is committed to making the wrong things right, and boy, does this kind of king provoke a response. The first response is the chief priests. They see their place of power and prestige threatened by Jesus, and out of fear, they decide, we're going to kill him. The second response is the crowd. They see what Jesus is doing, and their praise has transformed into amazement or shock. Now, it's interesting that we don't see the disciples' response to these events. They're still kind of stuck on the fig tree, which is classic for the disciples in Mark. They keep missing what's happening. So Jesus explains, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt it in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. The mountain Jesus refers to is probably more than just an immovable object. Sometimes we use mountains as illustrations of the insurmountable. And there are a lot of passages about prayer in the face of those insurmountable objects. But scholars agree that the mountain Jesus is referring to is actually the mountain the temple was physically built on. Imagine the temple and the mountain in the background. and Jesus says, anyone who says to that mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. It will be done for them. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The temple was beautiful. It had a purpose. But it was never meant to be the final solution of God's presence in this world. That solution was through Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. When he enters Jerusalem, Jesus knows he's going to lay down his life, taking on the sins of the world, the things that separated us from God. And in laying down his life, Jesus offers forgiveness so that all could be welcomed into God's family and experience God's presence wherever they go. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. But the story doesn't end there. When we read on, we know that he defeats death and he rises again. And in his life, we're invited into a new way of life. The Apostle Paul talks about this new life in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And then I I love that Paul says this. He says, in him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, the God who makes all things new now restores the purpose of the temple. But now it's not a building, but it's a people. Anyone who follows Jesus, we are all now the temple. And Jesus has given us authority through his spirit. Not so that we can act like the chief priests and accrue power. And it's not so that we can act like the crowds and cheer Jesus on when he agrees with our agenda. Those same crowds would turn on Jesus later that we can yell, crucify him, when they realize that Jesus wasn't going to do things on their terms. No, Jesus gives his disciples and us authority so that we can be a temple that is a place of welcome to the world. To be people that are empowered to walk with forgiveness, even when it would be so easy to hold a grudge. To be people that walk with generosity, even if that costs us. To be people that choose love over hate. To be people empowered to pray bold prayers like, God, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? That's one of the boldest prayers we can pray because it takes courage. If we truly pray that, that's going to shake some things up in our world. This is the authority that Jesus gives his disciples, and he gives us. Mark 11 is a reminder that the kingdom of God is near. The season is upon us. And we are empowered by the Spirit to be people that bear fruit. So when we think of this week, or the season of Lent, what's our response to this passage? I doubt many of us are going to interact with a fig tree in the winter in Minnesota. But if you would, would you imagine this with me? Imagine if Jesus was walking along with us into our lives, into our families, into our communities, into our places of work, into our homes. And imagine if you were walking together and you approached a tree that represented your life. What would Jesus speak to that tree? What would Jesus' prophetic conversation with that tree say about us? Individually, corporately? What would he say about the places that God has placed us? Would he find fruit? As much as we think, I'm not like the people back then, I think we're tempted to do the same thing, to welcome Jesus on our own terms to fall into this habit of building up barriers, to make it all about my happiness and my control, to become so inward focused that we miss where the kingdom of God is breaking in and where Jesus is inviting us out of deep love to fix our eyes on him and let his spirit move through us for our neighbor's good and for God's glory. So as we think about this walk with Jesus, I believe this passage offers first an invitation and then a challenge. The first is an invitation. As you walk with Jesus, do you know that Jesus loves you? We can't just bear fruit on our own. It's not about trying harder and then I will bear spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit comes from a life rooted in Jesus' love. It's out of that love that Jesus has made a way for us to be in relationship with God. God. There are no animal sacrifices, no money exchanges, no status requirements, no physical walls that dictate who can and can't enter. Jesus' death and resurrection tore down the dividing walls between us and God. So everyone is invited to experience that love. Now, it's a love that won't leave you the same, but it's also a love that won't leave you. It's a love that will meet you in the grand celebrations and also by the hospital beds. It's a love that holds heartache and heartbreak. It can heal what's broken. It's a love present in the doubts and in the certainty and everywhere in between. It's a love that fights to make the wrong things right, that sits with the vulnerable and advocates for those on the outside looking in. It removes every barrier that comes between us in him. So as you walk with Jesus this week, what would it look like to receive Jesus's love? Receive Jesus's love as a parent, as a student, as you're stepping into a new life stage. Maybe it's stepping towards Jesus's love for the first time, or maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and life has convinced you that your relationship with Jesus is tied to your efforts. This invitation might be realizing and reminding yourself that this love chooses you over and over and over again, not because of what you've earned, but because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus invites us to receive his love, but like I said, this invitation also comes with a challenge because this love won't leave us the same. We're empowered by the Spirit to be people that bear fruit, but that will involve letting some things go. That was the problem for the chief priests. They had turned a temple that was supposed to be about God's presence into a place defined by their own power and privilege. They were so focused on building their little kingdom that when the great kingdom of God was in their midst, they missed it. Their focus on themselves hindered their spiritual fruit. We know that God's kingdom is in our midst. We know that his love is moving all around us. So in this season of Lent, is there something in the inner courts of our temples that Jesus is challenging us to lay down? Or that Jesus wants to clear out? Not out of guilt, but out of deep love for us and for those around us. What would it look like to lay down power to serve? Are we invited to lay down control? To lay down my politics, my preferences, my expectations, my way to follow Jesus? What would it look like to walk with forgiveness? What would it look like to lay down my place so that someone else can experience belonging or feel heard? What would it look like to lay down a lie that the enemy has made me believe that I'm clinging to so tightly? But Jesus out of love says, I want to clear that out of your life. Now, it could also be a host of good things. Things that God has given us, that God's blessed us with. But these things need to be reprioritized because they're making us miss what the kingdom of God is doing. What would it take to say to Jesus, you can have it all? I've been filling my life with all these things. I've been holding on to them so closely, treating them as precious. But I'm yours. I don't want a Jesus who I can form into my own image but I want a Jesus that forms me into his. Friends, this is challenging. Daily, I feel like I'm in negotiations with Jesus. Like, you can have that, but I can keep this. Or I'll give you 80%, but at least let me keep 20%. Because I want to hold on to my comfort and control. I still want to be the leader of my temple. It's so tough to yield that control to Jesus but this is the life that we're empowered to live. And it's not so that we can be known as good people. It's so that people can be pointed to and experience the presence of God. That as temples in our everyday spaces, we would be beacons of God's welcome to a world that needs God's presence, bearing spiritual fruit in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our homes, and our families. So this week, As you walk with King Jesus, where do you need to receive Jesus' love? And what are we invited to lay down or clear out in order to fix our eyes on Jesus and seek the kingdom? Vacation ushers might be shelved indefinitely. But King Jesus is on the move, right? He's walking with us. He's going before us. His transforming love is at work all around us. And so would we be people that pray that God's kingdom comes in our everyday spaces? Would we have the courage, because it'll take courage to respond to Jesus's loving invitation to join his work of restoration and healing in our world. This next song leads us in that prayer. Spirit of God, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? And then leads us to ponder, what do I need to lay down in order to seek Jesus' kingdom, in order to bear fruit? Those are two bold prayers. And so before we go into our time of worship, would you join me? I'm just going to pray for us. And then we're going to head into our reflection together. Jesus, we thank you that you're a king who walks with us. We thank you that you're a leader who has not abandoned us. And so, Holy Spirit, I believe you're inviting us to ask these questions, but Jesus, I believe you're inviting us to ask these questions with love in your eyes. And so, Jesus, as we think about the places where you have called us to go, whether we think about our neighborhoods or our families, whether there's a certain relationship or person that comes to mind. Jesus, what would it mean to pray that your kingdom comes in that space? And would we be bold enough to pray that? And Jesus, as we think of the places that you've placed us, what would it mean for us to lay down some of the things that are coming in the way of that? to join you and clear some things out of our lives so that we can better seek you and follow you. Jesus, you love us so deeply. And so right now, as we ponder those questions, in Jesus' name, I pray against a spirit of shame. Holy Spirit, would you come into this place? I pray for a spirit of freedom, a spirit of care, Lord, a spirit that acknowledges that your presence is here and you're walking with us through this processing. And so Jesus, we give this next time of worship to you. Would you lead us in these prayers together? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you join us in worship?